the wedding at Cana. Shalom! Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of the Second Sunday of Epiphany, January 16th, 2022, from Christ Church, Jerusalem. That Jesus miraculously turned water into wine has made the story of the wedding at Cana well known. John calls the transformation a sign, as it's much more than a miracle. Reverend Neville Jones walks us through the details of the story as well as how Jesus refers to weddings in his teachings. He will then show us the significance and prophetic nature of this sign, the first of the seven signs in Jesus' ministry. We begin with a short word from Reverend David Pelegi. You know, many um, Jewish synagogues, they have... uh, it's usually some words written on the, the ark that holds the Torah scrolls. And many a synagogue has the words, know before whom you stand. Yes, know before whom you stand. And um, that sense of awe and wonder and holiness is... We need to regularly make sure that we recapture that. And when we come to God's word, we don't hear it in a careless or uh, lazy manner. So let's pray together that uh, we will hear the word of God in a a way that um, brings each one of us life. And the prayer is as follows. Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior, is the light of the world. Grant that your people, enlightened by your word and sacraments, may shine with the radiance of his glory, that he may be worshipped and obeyed to the ends of the earth. Know before whom we stand. And we ask this through Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen. So we continue the reading of Scripture. And our first reading comes from Isaiah 62. Very beautiful, poignant portion of Isaiah. And even though we may be familiar with this text. Let's try to hear with uh, new ears, you might say. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet until her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah. Your land will be called Beulah. For the Lord takes delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, 
so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. This surely is the word of the Lord. Amen. The psalm appointed for today is Psalm 36, verses 5 to 10. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, and your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. Continue your love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's now stand for the reading of the gospel and hear the good news of the Messiah, our King. The reading is from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's just open with a word of prayer. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would honor us by your presence and meet us in our needs. Lord, we pray that you would teach us from within to be more like our Lord and Savior. 
So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, our God and our Redeemer. Amen. Today we are looking at the gospel story of the wedding at Cana in Galilee. As I'm sure you'll agree, this is a very well-known story. And even those who know little about the gospel have heard about the miracle where Jesus turned the water into wine. But those of you who know a bit more about the gospel and about John's gospel in particular will know that there is more to this story than just a miracle. In fact, as we heard in the reading, John doesn't call it a miracle, he calls it a sign. Now the other three gospels talk about signs, but not usually to refer to what Jesus did. Several times we read that Jesus' opponents and detractors sought from him a sign, and he replied, they, they wouldn't get one except for the sign of Jonah. It seems the signs recorded in John's gospel were primarily intended for his disciples. Towards the end of his gospel, John writes this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There are many ways in which John's gospel is different from the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Firstly, it was written towards the end of the first century when, God was, when uh, John was an elderly man perhaps 20 or 30 years after the other Gospels. But I'm sure John was aware of these other accounts, but he chose a different perspective. For example, a major theme in John's Gospel is how Jesus understood his identity through his relationship with his Father in heaven. John also says at the end of his Gospel that if everything that Jesus did was written down, it would more than fill the world. So clearly, John is very selective in what he records. So we have in the first half of John's Gospel, seven specially selected signs. And in the middle section of the Gospel, there are the seven I am statements. For example, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And throughout the gospel, there are seven occasions where people recognize and confess that Jesus is the Son of God. So in this, the first sign, it's likely that there's going to be going on more than Jesus just saving a young couple from a very embarrassing end to their wedding party. He's definitely doing more than keeping the party going. If they thought about it, people 
would probably expect that this first sign should be really dramatic, something to make a statement, to put down a marker. Perhaps a previously unheard of miracle of healing, or maybe even raising the dead. Now, these things do occur in the list of signs that John presents, but they are not the first one. It's rather less obvious than that. In my experience, I find that reading John's gospel is sometimes like taking a walk in the hills where there's lots to see of things around you, but then you look down and you realize the path under your feet has become transparent, like one of those glass walkways. And there's a lot more going on below the surface. In John's Gospel, there is truly a lot more going on. So let's take a closer look. Verse 1 says, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana at Galilee. Hmm, the phrase, on the third day, that's, it's not just placing this occasion relative to the one at the end of the first chapter. It is doing that, but if you think that there's something in this story that resonates with the, res that resonates with the resurrection, you are correct, and we'll get to that. But let's stay with the plain reading for now. I don't know whether you noticed, but in John chapter 1, there's a sequence of four days where we read, you know, the next day and then the next day and the next day. And we read about John the Baptist and his testimony about Jesus. And when Jesus met and called his first disciples. So in chapter 2, the third day after that takes us, by my reckoning, to day six of the first week of Jesus' ministry as recorded by John. Note in chapter one that John has revealed Jesus as the pre-incarnate word who was active in the creation of everything. In this story, we have an incident that starts with water, in fact, six big jars of it, and water was present before the first recorded command of creation. I'll read this famous verse. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. So I think that we have an allusion to creation here. Even though it's subtle, this hint adds to the significance of what Jesus is about to do. Let's now talk about weddings. In those days, there were immensely important occasions for the whole community, as well as the families involved. But in our experience, weddings 
happen on a single day, we join in the ceremony and the festivities for a few hours, and then we go home. In Jesus' day, a wedding could last for several days, even a whole week. Friends and relatives could take many hours or even a day or more traveling, and they would need accommodation. Whereas some members of the community would be around for just a few days and others would be there for the whole event. The betrothal would have been agreed a year before the wedding, and in the intervening time, the betrothed man would have been building or at least preparing a place for them to live, very probably next to or nearby his family home. There were also the delicate negotiations about the dowry paid by the groom's family to the father of the bride. When all was decided and the preparations completed, the bridegroom, with his companions, would leave the place prepared for the occasion and go to the house of the bride's father to collect her. They would then return to his house with singing and rejoicing, and when they arrived, the festivities would begin. There are several places, some obvious, some not so, where Jesus refers to things connected with weddings. On one occasion, he was asked why his disciples didn't fast, like the Pharisees did and the John's disciples did. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot as long as they have him with them. So the idea of going to a wedding feast and then fasting would be completely ludicrous. Jesus also speaks of himself as the bridegroom in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. The wise are ready, but the foolish are not, and they end up being shut out of the marriage feast. Jesus also refers to the role of the bridegroom in this passage in John 14, though without specifically mentioning a wedding. He doesn't really need to because the allusion is so clear. Listen to this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. This idea of a banquet in heaven at the consummation of history, it's not a new idea. Isaiah wrote about it hundreds of years before Jesus. He said, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet 
of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And in chapter 62, as we heard earlier, Isaiah speaks of the glorious future of Jerusalem in terms of marriage. No longer will they call you deserted or your, or your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And going even further back in time, King David uses the imagery of a feast in God's presence to describe his overwhelming blessing and provision. And we heard these lines earlier from Psalm 36. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast in the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. Now a word about Cana, where the marriage took place. The place I have in mind is just an archaeological site on a hillside overlooking a broad valley. Nazareth, which at the time was just a small village, was 13 kilometers south of Cana, so just a few hours walk away. The east-west Roman road linking the Sea of Galilee to the Mediterranean ran along the Beit-Natofa Valley close to Cana. Anyone traveling from Capernaum or the villages nearby to Cana would have traveled on that road. It was about a day's journey with a stretch of it uphill at the beginning. Back to the text. It says, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. I get the impression that Mary was a good friend, or perhaps even a relative of one of the families of the bride or groom, because there seems nothing out of place for her to give instructions to the servants in the house. Did you notice that? And which disciples were with Jesus? At this stage in the gospel, we have heard of four of Jesus' disciples in chapter one. There may have been more, but I suspect at least these five to be there. John, who is our eyewitness, Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, Philip, and certainly Nathaniel, since Cana was his hometown. Now Mary passed on to Jesus the unwelcome news that there was no more wine. It's not really surprising that she should turn to him for several reasons. Firstly, 
He was her firstborn son, and since it's generally assumed that her husband Joseph had died, Jesus would have naturally taken the role of leadership in the family. Also, his mother knew that he could be relied on to bring wisdom and insight into any situation. Jesus' response to her, Woman, why do you involve me? It seems rather cold and detached. Now, it's difficult for us to be certain whether this form of address was normal from a person in Jesus' position who had, by his age and his calling, become somewhat independent of his family. It's worth noting, though, that in an intensely emotional moment, when Jesus is dying on the cross, John records that Jesus uses the same form of address to his mother. Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. That was John. In any event, Mary is not taken aback in the slightest. And then Jesus adds, my hour has not yet come. I think it's quite unlikely that his mother had any idea what he was talking about. You know, as we say, it just went straight over her head. But those of us who read through John's gospel will know that the phrase his hour or my hour refers to the day of Jesus' arrest, trial and crucifixion. And I'll explain this. We read, for example, in chapter 7. So they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And in chapter 8, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But later in chapter 12, Jesus is praying. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But this, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And finally, in chapter 17, on the evening of the Last Supper, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus saying something a bit obscure was not new to Mary. She had had 30 years' experience of people, including Jesus, himself, say some unexpected and truly amazing things about her son. People like the shepherds at Jesus' birth, or Simeon when the baby Jesus was presented in the temple, and even Jesus at age 12 
when they finally found him on the third day in the temple discussing things with the scribes and the teachers of the law. But we read that Mary pondered and treasured these things in her heart. So as we say, Mary was not easily phased. But despite not understanding what Jesus was talking about, she knew that he could be trusted. So in her wisdom, she instructed the servants, do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters, or some passages have 20 to 30 gallons. This detail is interesting, both the size of these jars and what they're made of. In Jesus' time, laws for ritual purity had extended beyond the temple and impacted the lives of ordinary people. For example, the custom of washing before eating. Based on guidelines in the Torah, the Jewish sages had ruled that vessels made of stone do not lose their ritual purity unlike those made of earthenware, leather, or wood. Jerusalem was a center for the production of these large goblet-like stone jars. And in the 1970s, a number of examples were found in excavations in the old city. Here's a picture of two that are on display in a museum in the Jewish quarter. These stone jars were made on a lathe out of a single block of limestone, and hence their nearly cylindrical shape. And we have another picture here, courtesy of the Israel Museum, where they have thoughtfully put together six jars of varying size. At the house of Cana, I'm sure the stone jars would have been filled in preparation for the wedding. But then many of the guests would have come and used some water to rinse their hands before eating. After Jesus instructed them, the servants would have done several round trips to the local well using stone jars small enough to carry because these big ones you couldn't lift, even when they were empty. And when they were full, they were like, and the weight of a grown-up person as well, 100 kilos extra. They stayed still. So they carried water and refilled them in a, a circle. And having filled them to the brim, Jesus then tells the servants to take a sample to the master of the banquet, by which time the water had turned into the best aged wine you can imagine. Most modern Bibles will say in the text or a footnote how much water was in these stone jars in units that we can understand. I did a quick calculation and it reveals that these jars held enough wine to fill about 700 or 800 standard-sized wine bottles. 
Now, I could stop the talk here and just say that the lesson of this story is always to invite Jesus to your party. But I won't. (laughs) The master of the banquet takes the bridegroom aside and congratulates him on his remarkable decision to save the best wine until last. I can just imagine a pleased but rather puzzled look on the face of the bridegroom, who then goes back to his bride and she asks him what happened. I have no idea, but I can't wait to try this wine. And so the party continued. John says that in this turning of the water into wine, Jesus manifested his glory. But this glory wasn't a dazzling light. It wasn't a knock-you-over kind of glory. It was, however, no less profound. I like the fact that, in addition to his mother, the only people that really knew what happened were the servants and Jesus' disciples. Everyone got to share in the abundance of those who knew the, but those who knew the truth were those who ordinarily were overlooked. They had a chance to see the glory of the Lord in a very understated but powerful way. The other thing I find interesting is that Jesus didn't actually do anything. All he did was give the servants two commands. This miraculous sign was dependent on just two things, the presence of Jesus and the obedience of the servants. But the servants weren't actually doing anything out of the ordinary. They were just fetching water from the well, which was a routine part of their job, though on this occasion at the direction of Jesus. I find this most encouraging because the things that we consider routine and ordinary can be transformed by the presence of Jesus into a blessing beyond our expectation and imagination. So in this story, Jesus isn't only creating something new. He is also demonstrating that he came to bring life in all its abundance. Do you remember what he said? He said, the thief comes to only steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. But in order to provide this life in abundance, Jesus knows there is a price to pay. But the best wine of all will be saved until the end for those who believe in him. Now in the past week, I listened to a talk on this story by Tim Keller, the well-known pastor and Bible teacher based in New York. He said, have you ever noticed at a wedding that single people might for a moment stare into thin air, 
thinking about their own hoped-for wedding day. This could well be something that the young ladies do more than the young men. I must admit, I don't remember doing that. <laughs> Jesus' response to his mother that his hour had not yet come shows that to some extent he was thinking ahead to his own wedding day. As described in Revelation chapter 19, it's called the wedding day of the Lamb. And I'll read this. Hallelujah, for Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. While knowing that great day of celebration was ahead, Jesus was actually more focused on what it would take for him to provide that wonderful aged wine at that great banquet. And when that momentous evening came, when he was sharing the Passover meal with his disciples, we read this. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In that last statement, Jesus says, I will not drink of this fruit of this vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He confirms the sign that he performed at Cana was indeed prophetic. And we know for sure that he has saved the best wine until last. Amen. Let's pray. We pray, Lord, that we may learn of him, that we may understand his glory and honor him in more and more ways within our lives. We ask it in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.